Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello, uh, welcome to the latest ianabernethy.com podcast. Uh, very rainy day up here in northern England today, and that's what you get for living in one of the wettest parts of one of the wettest countries on the planet. Um, the rain's beating down pretty hard against the window, so um, you may be able to hear that a little bit on the, on the podcast. I've done my best to try and muffle it out, but you know, nature's against me. Um, quite a long podcast this month, um, where I want to discuss what I feel are the three biggest mistakes made uh, in karate. Um, and a little bit of discussion on how we can avoid them. But uh, before we get into that, just I'd like to keep the introduction real brief, but just some quick bits of news. Uh, one is Jason 6 will be with you very soon. It's, it's a few weeks behind uh, where it should be, and that's because um, I've been training up others to do the, uh, the typesetting and the laying it out uh, for us, and then uh, that way um, we can get the issues out to you, whether you know, I'm in the office or not. Um, so Jason 6 is coming very soon. We've got some great stuff in that for you. Uh, the Extreme Impact downloads that me and Steve Williams have done, I've seen the uh, first rough edits for them, and I'm very, very happy with them. Uh, so if you keep an eye on the newsletters, you'll get to know a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, I watched the one for developing power into your, your cross, your reverse punch, uh, this morning, and it, the download includes a whole host of drills to help you develop uh, power on the move and things, and they're looking really good, really happy with those. Um, and the other thing is just to uh, thank everyone who's uh, been purchasing the recent DVDs we made on the uh, uh, two-man drills that I teach uh, for the Pinan or Hian series. Uh, an awful lot of you have ordered those, and they continue to, to sell really well, which is uh, which is really good. You know, we've already covered the um, production costs on those, so we're actually in profit on them, which is you know it's great. I and mean, some of our DVDs we're still not in profit on, um, but. Really good that these ones have proved so successful, and obviously the money generated from that um, means that I can spend uh, time putting together, you know, the free stuff as well, like the, these podcasts and stuff. Because about half my time is spent uh, on the stuff that generates no income, but obviously at some point I've got to pay the bills. So, <laughs> so um, thank you to all those who uh, have supported the um, uh, those those DVDs. Right, okay, that's the introduction done. I'll shut up and um, we'll have a, a discussion on the three biggest mistakes uh, made in karate. In this podcast, I'd like to look at what I feel are the three biggest errors made by Karateka today. Now, as you know, I like to keep my podcasts positive, and it's way too easy just to stand back and point out what's wrong in the martial arts. Uh, personally, I'd rather put forward solutions and suggest how things can be made better. Um, however, people will only be interested in potential solutions if they're aware there's a problem in the first place. So what I thought I'd do in this podcast is point out what I feel are three of the most common and yet frequently unseen mistakes within karate. So I hope you'll forgive me for being a little uh, negative on this occasion, uh, and that you'll appreciate that my purpose in pointing out these errors is to encourage us to think of positive solutions, and to help ensure that both uh, the art of karate and its pr uh, practitioners can reach their maximum potential. Uh, so without further ado, here's the first mistake that I think are made by many karateka. So, mistake one, failing to differentiate between environments slash contexts. 
In the martial arts, we often have discussions on what works and what doesn't, and the trouble with the question, does this work, is that it's completely meaningless without first establishing the environment and the context. Do we mean, this, will this work in the dojo? Will this work in a boxing match, a karate tournament, in self-defense, in a cage fight? Unless we know the context, we can't answer the question of, does, uh, does this work, in a meaningful way. The problem we have is that, in my experience, the majority of karateka fail to differentiate between environments, and the reason they do this is because they're not aware that there is any difference. Everything gets lumped together, and training methods, concepts, and techniques that work well in one environment are inadvertently transposed to another environment in which they don't work. Um, to hopefully uh, help make things a little clearer, let's take a couple of techniques and see how their effectiveness changes as we change environment. Uh, for starters, let's take uh, the example of a controlled head height kick. Now, does that work? Well, in a karate tournament, yes, it does. It works great. Indeed, it's one of the key components that's required to win in the competitive environment. Uh, but will it work in any other environment? Uh, in boxing, it would get you knocked out or disqualified. Uh, in MMA, the fact that the kick was controlled would make it pointless, as you'd achieve nothing and would leave yourself open to being countered. In self-defense, you rarely get the room to kick, and such a risky method that won't yield any results would obviously be highly discouraged. So, although the technique works superbly well in one environment, it's pointless and dangerous in others. Uh, so, let's take another example. What about deliberately taking the fight to the ground with a skilled takedown? Um, it would get you disqualified in boxing and karate competitions. In self-defense, it would leave you vulnerable to getting kicked to death or stabbed by the acquaintances of the person you've taken to the floor, even if you were winning the ground fight with the person you'd taken down. Uh, in MMA, though, a dynamic and well-executed takedown could put uh, you in a very advantageous position, and it would be very popular with both uh, the judges and the audience. Uh, what about techniques for disengagement so we can run away? Well, such methods are obviously vitally important for self-defense, but running off the mat or out of the cage or out of the ring is uh, not going to lead to success in any other environment. We could go on with this ad infinitum, but I hope I've made it clear that by defining uh, the environment, we can then determine what works. If you don't define the environment, you know, the question of what works is a meaningless question. It's therefore a major problem when people fail to define the environment. Now, most karateka simply turn up and practice karate. They never identify all the subcategories of their practice. And the result is that students fail to identify what will lead to success in any given environment. And this can be disastrous. In my own dojo, I always identify what environment we are training for in any given moment. My students know when they are training for self-defense, uh, when they are training for fighting, and if you think that's the same as self-defense, you're also failing to differentiate between environments. They know when they're attribute training, and they know when they're just training for fun. And if we did any competition, which we don't, they'd also be clear that when they were training for that too. Now, a big contributor to this problem of failing to define the environment is that people overvalue the crossover between environments, and this leads to things merging and again leads to confusion. Um, in common dojo sparring, we move around looking and creating openings, apply our techniques, and then move out so the process can begin again. That's how most karateka spar. But even if we did this full contact, it's still fighting with one person and is nothing like what is required for self-defense should it de uh, degenerate into physical conflict. Now, it is true there will be some crossover, but it will only ever be a small crossover, and we should ensure our training is 100% relevant to the environment we are training for at that time, rather than being 5% relevant by default. One of the great things about always being 100% relevant and 100% focused, 
on a given environment is that it means that we can avoid the temptation to cram everything in one box in order to justify practice. When we train for the self-protection side of what we do, we are 100% focused on self-protection and everything we do is 100% relevant to self-protection. However, when we practice things like, say, complex ankle locks, we know this isn't relevant to self-protection and is something we are doing entirely for the fun of it. There's no need to create a, uh, a false link to self-protection in order to justify the practice of such things. We do them because they're interesting and they are fun to play with. The students know that we do such things for fun and not for self-protection. We differentiate between environments so that we train in a focused manner and so that the students are never confused. And by doing so, we also free ourselves of fun with the other elements of our martial arts uh, practice. So I'd strongly encourage you to differentiate between environments and not lump all of karate get, uh, together into one homogenous and focused mass. Uh, we can do it all, but we should always be 100% sure what environment we are training for in any given instance. Training for an unfocused all at all the time is a recipe for disaster as we fail to identify what will be successful in the various environments we may train for. Okay, the second biggest mistake I feel uh, people make uh, today is the introduction of artificial success criteria. And by artificial success criteria, I mean failing to measure by effect. So this is the second mistake, the introduction of artificial success criteria, or in other words, failing uh, to measure by effect. So the second mistake is related to the first. When we're unclear on what environment we are training for, we also fail to clearly identify what will lead to success in those environments. Uh, things get confused and the goal of training gets lost. Uh, and now this is what often leads to the introduction of artificial success criteria. True success criteria is always directly linked to the environment we are training for. If we are training for competition, then the success criteria is winning tournaments. Uh, the training should therefore be conducted with that in, uh, in mind, with that aim in mind, and success will be determined by whether we win or not. When we're training for self-protection, the success criteria will be the avoidance of dangerous situations in the first instance, disengaging and escaping from dangerous situations in the second instance, and quickly incapacitating the enemy or enemies if any of the previous proves impossible. Training should be conducted with these goals in mind and success determined by our ability to achieve these goals. The problem that we have in karate these days is that we've taken our eye off the ball and introduced artificial success criteria that frequently run contrary to our goals. Um, and as we've discussed, you know, these goals are either sometimes not set or they're very unfocused. So let, let's take the example of a punch. Right? A punch is fundamentally designed to damage other human beings so that they can no longer function. That's what a punch does. A punch should therefore be judged by the success criteria of its ability to incapacitate people. We should train our punches with that goal in mind, such that our training increases the ability of our punches to incapacitate. A punch should be deemed good if it can damage people. However, uh, karate, uh, in, in karate these days, we rarely use uh, this functional si uh, success criteria and instead have introduced uh, artificial success criteria, such as what a punch looks like or how closely it conforms to the arbitrary dictates of a given style. Uh, we therefore don't train for powerful punches that can damage others. We train to produce punches that look nice and tick all the boxes of our style. These artificial criteria tend to take precedence and we no longer measure by effect. Now I know that some of the people listening to this 
uh, will be thinking that by stating we should measure by effect that we're endorsing sloppy technique. And the reason I know that is that is often what's thrown back at me when I make this, this comment. Now, are you one of those people? Now, if you are, you have to ask yourself why you associate effective with sloppy. Now, I would say that's because in your heart of hearts, you know that what you define as good technique is ineffective. And hence, you instinctively link effective with sloppy, uh, which you'll admit to, and ineffective with sharp, which you probably won't admit to. Uh, now, as I say, sometimes when I make this comment, people wrongly assume that when I say functional technique, I'm endorsing something that's clumsy or crude, you know, for example, just a big muscular swing of a fist. And hence, this is somehow inferior to the highly refined and aesthetic martial arts technique. Now, that's one million miles away from the truth, in my view, as a technique should bo be both uh, simultaneously highly refined, highly aesthetic and highly functional. Uh, we can and should be measuring by effect and relentlessly working to increase that effect. The end result will be a highly polished technique which will be pleasing to the eye and is highly functional. The technique is good because it works incredibly well. We won't define good by a set of criteria which may not be linked to functionality. Uh, we need to return to measuring everything by effect. The more effective it is, the better it is. Now, sure, it will look good and it may well be in line with the criteria of your group or style, if your group or style also measures by effect. But these are secondary considerations and functionality must always be what we pursue as the primary goal. To do anything else than, uh, other than pursue functionality as a primary goal will lead to a reduction in functionality as we'll be putting the cart before the horse. Um, I'd just like to conclude this little section by pointing out again that effectiveness is always determined by the environment, and hence uh, this mistake is linked to the first, and both the first and second mistakes are linked to the third, which we'll now go on to discuss. So the third mistake is this, failing to judge personal training by personal results. So I'll just say that again, okay? Failing to judge personal training by personal results, okay? So if we've successfully defined the environment and we're training to ensure success within that environment, uh, then we're well on our way to getting the most out of our training. However, there is still one more trap that I see many karateka falling into, uh, and that's failing to judge their personal training by their personal results. Um, so, in recent times, uh, the MMA world has been incredi uh, incredibly impressed by, by uh, uh, Otto Machada and his performances in the UFC. Uh, now, as I'm sure you'll, you'll know, Machada has a strong background in Shotokan karate, and hence I have heard quite a few Shotokan practitioners saying that this proves karate's effectiveness. But does it? Uh, Machada has not made the first mistake as he is differentiated between environments and he trains specifically for the MMA environment. Not only that, he has not made the second mistake because his success criteria is effectiveness in MMA. His training is therefore perfectly focused to address the needs of MMA. The Shotokan practitioner, or any other form of karateka for that matter, who trains twice a week in sessions that consist of nothing more than 30 minutes of line work, 30 minutes of solo kata, and then 30 minutes of light sparring that does not in, uh, include uh, low kicks, hook punches, grabbing, grappling, groundwork, heavy contact, and so on cannot compare what they do with what Machada does, you know, the training entirely differently. Machida's success has therefore not proved that all Shotokan practitioners can be UFC champions, uh, nor does it prove the effectiveness of line work and air punching in preparing MMA fighters. 
uh, personal training can only be judged by personal results. You can't say um, a cheetah success has any bearing on your own training. You're as good as you are. You're not as good as Machida just because you both label what you do as Shotokan or label it as karate. Now, I've heard people make similar claims about Gavin Mulholland and his guys. You know, their success in the cage uh, does not prove the effectiveness of karate overall in MMA. It just proves the effectiveness of the way Gavin trains his guys for MMA, which is only one small part of the way you know, they, their overall approach to karate. Um, but again, when training for MMA, you'll notice how mistakes one and two are not made. You know, they know what it takes to win and they're focused on it. Um, so away from high-level, you know, combative sport, I've also heard the likes of myself and Gavin Mulholland and Lawrence Kane, Chris Wilder, Michael Rosenbaum, etc. pointed to as uh, examples of proof that karate works in self-protection. Now, some of the world's leading self-protection experts, you know, Peter Constein, Jeff Thompson, you know, Mark Annamont Young and, and, and others, have endorsed karate as I approach it, and it's always great to receive su such uh, recognition as I truly do believe that karate is an extremely potent system that can be very relevant to modern-day self-protection. However, what does worry me is when people who don't train in the same way as me or who don't teach karate in the way that I do, use me as an example as of how their karate is effective, even when what they do bears little resemblance to what I do. Um, the other thing that uh, I often come across is my name being used as proof that kata is effective. Now, as I'm sure as you know, I'm a great believer in kata, and I feel it does have a massive amount to offer the practically-minded karateka, but it has to be approached in the right way. Endless solo kata, with the sole purpose of making it look good, so you can win competitions or pass gradings. I'll refer back to stake, uh, mistake two because this is another example of artificial success criteria at work. Will not lead to combative effectiveness. Studying the bunkai and giving the methods contained within kata free range inspiring will lead to combat, uh, combative effectiveness. Um, so there's an ever growing number of karateka who are returning to an holistic and pragmatic approach to karate. I meet these people all the time, and what they do is very effective. Uh, and I would imagine that most of the people listening to this podcast fall into the category of those pursuing effectiveness. However, karateka who don't study bunkai and who don't use that knowledge in their training should not use the effectiveness of those who do in order to justify what they do. The reason for this is that although both groups operate under the name of karate, they are not training in the same way. Um, another element of this is I also frequently see people in karate pointing to the exceptionally talented, the exceptions to the rule, if you will, to justify practices that are inappropriate for the majority and are also inappropriate for them, they themselves. So this is another example of failing to judge personal training by personal results. For example, you know, when I've said that headache kicking is not a wise idea in real situations, it's not uncommon for people to point to the likes of uh, Terry O'Neill. So, okay, you know, Terry O'Neill is an amazingly talented karateka who's excelled in the sporting, traditional, and real environment. Um, and it's true that he has used head-eye kicks very effectively in real situations. But that doesn't mean that we all should. I mean, can you kick as well as Terry? Now, if not, I would suggest that you want to keep all the kicks low if you kick at all. Today's elite and yesterday's masters can't fight your battles for you. It's what you do personally that counts, and it's what you can do personally that counts. Don't base your training on the exceptional abilities of others. Base your training on what you do personally. And likewise, don't fall into the trap of claiming the effectiveness of other approaches for yourself when you train differently to them. 
It's not about claiming the ability of exceptional individuals as your own. It's also not about claiming ability through the shared label of karate, when there's you know, so many different approaches to what karate is and so many different approaches to training. You should only judge the effectiveness of your personal, by, uh, personal training by what it has done for you personally. I'll just reiterate that because I think this is really important. You should only judge the effectiveness of your personal training by what it has done for you personally. Now, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, these three mistakes are so important because people do not realize that they are making them. Now, there are other common errors, to be sure, but what me makes uh, these three so problematic is that people either don't recognize uh, that they're making them, or they fail to understand the, the problem correctly in the first place. And because of that, they either don't solve the problems, or they fail to solve them effectively because they never understood the nature of the problem. So let's you know quickly recap. Okay, So mistake one, failing to differentiate between environments and contexts. To solve this, we need to be 100% sure on what we're training for at any given moment, and be sure that all training is 100% relevant to that environment. No trying to cram everything into a generic karate box. Understand that modern karate has many subcomponents and that these subcomponents need to be trained individually if confusion is to be avoided and effectiveness attained. No overemphasizing the crossover and the byproducts. Keep all training 100% focused and 100% relevant to whatever you are training for at any given instance. So the second mistake, the introduction of artificial success criteria or failing to measure by effect. So always measure the value of a technique or a training method by the results that it gives you, the results that it yields. Don't measure things by artificial success criteria such as how something looks or its adherence to style purity. Measuring by effect and relentlessly working to enhance that effect should be what martial arts are all about. I mean that's what it is in boxing, that's what it is in judo, you know, the, 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 the we have a goal in mind and they train for that goal. They don't have artificial success criteria in, in, those, in, in those areas. Um, Reality-based self-defense is another one. The good reality-based self-defense guys do not introduce artificial success criteria. Um, and we should be the same in karate. The only way to achieve effectiveness is to specifically train for effectiveness. Training for another artificial goal, or no goal at all, and hoping we will come effective by default is not going to lead to effectiveness. Uh, the third mistake is failing to judge personal training by personal results. So inextricably linked to the previous two mistakes is the need to judge personal training by personal results. How do you train and is that training working for you? It's not about claiming effectiveness from the way others train or the exceptional abilities of exceptional people. It's about whether your training is working for you. Other people's abilities mean nothing because you are not them. And other people's training regimes mean nothing to you if you are training differently. Now it may well be that you know that your training does not fall foul of these mistakes. After all, you obviously have uh, an interest in pragmatic karate and you're an intelligent and discerning individual as is evidenced by the fact that you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> However, it's always good, a good idea to check just in case you know you are one of the people who does not realize they are making these mistakes. You know they can always creep in. Um, if you're clear on what environment you are training for and you know what it takes to be successful in that environment, 
and you always measure your personal skills by the effect that you can personally attain, then you're sure to develop high levels of skill and martial efficiency. almost concludes uh, this month's uh, podcast. Uh, I hope you in enjoyed that one and found it uh, interesting. I did sound very serious though, didn't I? <laughs> Just listen to that back. I was, I was getting a bit hot under the collar there. I need to take a few deep breaths and <laughs> calm myself down. Deep breaths here and count to ten. <laughs> but yeah, serious things these. You know, I love the art of karate and I want to see it do well. I want to see it thrive and I want to see its practitioners get as much out of it as they possibly can. Um, so when I see these errors, you know, hopefully by raising them, um, uh, if you're making them yourself, so you can maybe address that, or if you see other people making those um, uh, errors, maybe you can help them address it too. Um, and you know, from that, hopefully, karate will benefit, and that, that's you know certainly the intention behind uh, this month's podcast. So any feedback is welcome at Ian I A I N at ianabernethy.com. So that's Ian at ianabernethy.com. Um, you know, I record these podcasts, you know, stuck away in the office on the laptop, and you know, thousands and thousands of people listen to them, and I, you know, that's great. I really appreciate you doing that, and it's great to know we're obviously providing a service that people feel uh, is of value, and we can only do that with feedback. You know, uh, most of the ideas for these podcasts come from people sending me emails or chatting to me at the seminars and t telling me what they'd like to hear more of. So, um, yeah, your feedback's always very welcome, and of course, you know, there'll be no point even recording the podcast unless people listen to them so i'd like to you know thank uh, thank you. you you personally now you you who's listening to this at this very minute you know thank you for listening to it you know you've you've ad added to the listener numbers and you make the whole process worthwhile so thanks for spending um, half an hour or so in my company so yeah that's it for this month um i'll be back uh, next month with some uh, a new kind of podcast some more information for you um yeah i hope you have a cracking month and i'll speak to you again soon okay bye now bye bye